this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. So you're an entrepreneur and you've got somewhere between a million and 10 million in annual revenue. And you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe you wanna scale up, maybe you wanna sell, maybe you wanna bring in a manager and delegate some of the day-to-day stuff, bring in the next generation of leaders, maybe you wanna pass it down to your family. All of those options, the one prerequisite is that it's built to sell, that it's actually something that you could pass on to another generation without you. And that's really what we try to evaluate using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the questionnaire, and then you're going to get a readout of how your business would be viewed by an acquirer across eight unique dimensions that acquirers care about. Again, it takes only about 15 minutes. You can do it free at valuebuilder.com. So how do you feel about earnouts? You know, the deal where you accept some money in payment for your business up front, and then there's a future payment if and when you meet certain targets in the future. Usually, earnouts are tied to, you know, EBITDA or top line revenue growth or retention of a specific customer. And usually, I spend a lot of time crapping all over earnouts. But my next guest actually had a good experience. His name is David Terwern, and you're about to meet David and his advisor, Jeff Green. David is the founder of a company called DT, which went on to be acquired by STW Group, which in turn got acquired by WP Group, one of the you know, world's largest advertising agencies. And David's you know, experience, again, with an earnout was really interesting. It turned out that his original payment for his business amounted to less than actually he got downstream from his earnout uh, because he did such a great job of growing the business after he was acquired. Uh, so again, it, sometimes it works out. You'll also hear from Jeff Green on this call. Jeff is David's advisor and also the author of the book, The Smart Business Exit. And if you haven't picked up this book, it's certainly worth the read. You can check it out on Amazon. Uh, Jeff's actually based in Melbourne, Australia, but it's a uh, it's available obviously in North America and is a great read. And one of the things that Jeff really encouraged David to do is think about his business through the eyes and lens of an acquirer. And I think that's in part how David was able to get a premium multiple for his business and ultimately why the earnout worked out so well for David. Uh, to tell you the rest of the story, here's David Torn and Jeff Green. David Trewern, Jeff Green, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, great to be on the program, John. So this represents a unique little spin here, Jeff. And if it's if it works well, it's all my idea. And if it totally bombs, it's your idea, buddy. This was <laughs> Thanks, a, John. This was uh, <laughs> this was proposed. We we talked about this over email. This idea of doing sort of a three way interview because Jeff, you're one of our certified value builders, and David, you're one of uh, Jeff's clients. And and so this may go horribly wrong, or it may be a great new formula that we're going to do from now on. So we'll find out in about half an hour. <laughs> David, tell us about your business. You guys were in the digital marketing space. That's right. Yeah. Well, look, I've now sold three businesses, but yeah, the business we're talking about today is is a business called DT. I started it when I was 23. Um, it was started out being a web design business back in 1996, um, and it grew into a, a full scale sort of digital agency 
So yeah, my wife and I worked in the business and we grew it for about 15 years before we sold it. So it, it sort of feels like our first child. Um, so it was a long time coming selling the business. Your subsequent exits have been in what areas and at what time frame? Uh, the subsequent, the other businesses or yeah. the other? Yeah, you mentioned yeah, you had other, three. Yeah, yeah well, I, I also started a brand design business that was running concurrently with DT and I sold that. Uh, shortly after DT, and then I got involved in a in a private college uh, with 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 some other partners, and I sold out of that um, two years ago. Interesting. So we'll focus on DT, but yeah. I'd love to explore some of those other exits at another time. So uh, uh, digital agency, which that world has evolved enormously in fifteen years. You, you started out making websites, and I'm sure you got into all sorts of stuff by the end. Yeah, definitely. Like, it, I mean, the business was a different business every year for. It's the business is now 20 years old. You know, I sold it um, completely out after 15 and I was the non-executive chairman until kind of last month. So it's now 20 years old. And the business just kept on evolving and changing and growing as the internet evolved, you know. So it was a, it was a business that was very dynamic and, and always different. And when did you first get the idea to potentially sell it? Well, I think, you know, again, I started in 1996 Around 2000, we had this whole dot-com um, boom and bust. And even though I only had five or six employees <laughs> and it was a pretty small business at that point, I had people contacting me wanting to buy the business um, because there was just this crazy time where anybody that had any skill in that area, that had any clients or any revenue was um, was being approached. So, you know, before leading up to this acquisition, there were a number of other potential exits that I discussed um, and, and Jeff was involved with all the way through. He was one of my first clients. Um, so we were been clients of each other. <laughs> and, um, you know, at one stage I was approached by a larger group that wanted to put together a group of 30 or 40 companies and do a roll up and do a, an IPO. And I got heavily, heavily involved in that for a couple of years. And then that sort of bombed. Um, but once I'd gone through that exercise, I was committed to, to um, selling the business and then and then went and found the right buyer. Got it. And so what sorts of revenue ha- did you have and, or number of employees were you at when you actually started your transaction with SDW? Yeah, sure. So look, again, I started the business with with my credit card and it was just me and the business grew. And I think, I think we're probably about um, 10 to 15 people when they bought the first, uh, I think they bought 33% from me. Um, and then I sold them another... Um, no, they bought forty percent. Then I sold another eight percent um, through another earnout, which were both three-year earnouts. And at the start of my last earnout, we were about twenty-five people. And then when the final earnout finished in two thousand and ten, it was um, we tripled through the earnout, the final earnout, to probably about eighty people. Got it. Okay. So, and, and roughly what time frame was this when you first sold sold the first tranche? Yeah, so I sold the first tranche in it, w- it would have been um, it would have been two thousand and two, something like that, and then maybe two thousand and um, five, I sold another smaller tranche, and then the final earnout went from two thousand and seven to two thousand and ten, and by the end of two thousand and ten, yeah, we had about ten million dollars revenue, and obviously when I'd started the business back in ninety six, we had zero revenue, so it was kind of a very gradual probably 25% compound annual growth almost every year for, for that, for that, for that, um, you know, sort of 15 year period. 
Got it. And so, David, I, I'm used to seeing a, a sale agreement where there, you know, there's a purchase and sale of shares. There, there may be an earnout over three, five, seven years, but it's all one transaction. Is it correct to say these were three separate transactions? Yeah, there were three separate transactions. I mean, STW typically at the time took this approach of, you know, they wanted to buy, invest in businesses where they left the founder to run the business because they're obviously very people-oriented businesses. Um, they didn't want to run, they had 80, uh, well, they've, they've got, you know, 70 or 80 um, businesses that they own in Australia. It's now WPP. Um, and they would typically buy between, you know, 35 and and say 70% of a business and, and sort of leave it at that. So the first tranche, you know, I didn't want to sell, I didn't want to sell a majority stake. So I sold them 40%. Um, and yeah, that, that that was really how it how it started. Look, they... I'd actually sold. Go ahead. Sorry, I'd, I'd sold a I'd sold a smaller share to to um to another chap who was a bit of a mentor, and he was putting together the roll up. So he actually sold out at the same time. So yeah, I sold the first forty percent. Went through a three year earn out. There was no promise or put call or anything that we're going to buy any more equity. Um, and then you know for a while there, I really thought I was stuck, and I was never going to be able to sell the rest because I had this buyer who'd bought you know, a big chunk and, um, and it was, you know, I couldn't really sell, sell the rest to anybody else. Um, and really we, we kind of, uh, you know, a real need came up for them where they really needed the business. Um, and that's what really opened the door to selling the final 51% because at the time the business was actually called David Trewern design. So it was all built around me and there wasn't a whole lot of incentive for them to buy the remainder of the business until they realized that, you know, how much value it could add to their core business. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So, Jeff, at, at this point in the game, what what is your advice been at this point up up until now to, to David? Uh, are you involved in, in in advising him on on the first sale of the first tranche? Yeah, well, it's been an interesting interesting journey, John. Because uh, as David said, our relation start started with. Uh, me actually being a client of David's. Um, I was at the time spearheading setting up uh, Bendigo Stock Exchange as an alternative market in Australia. We were looking for a web website developer and uh, and chose David. So our relationship started in that way. And then, uh, then over time, um, I assisted David virtually every step of the way. So from, from the time David was exploring potential roll-ups and so on, and then then advising David on, on each of the successive transactions that led to his ultimate exit. So what were your views on STW's offer to buy 40%? Um, Look, that we'd gone through a period, I, I guess, um, in the early internet boom of exploring a whole lot of different options, um, and the opportunity with STW uh, really arose from the initial um, angel investor in David's business, Michael Ball, who who introduced David to STW, um, and there were pros and cons in in that that deal because you you had a, a, a a player that had 40% of David's company, but with no promise to buy the rest out. So it was a matter of looking at the pros and cons of that. Um, but the thing STW, I think, has had done pretty well over the years was was buy stakes in companies and then have them really incentivized to keep growing their business. Um, so the, the model overall worked and David could have gone off and sold to somebody else and exercised you know, his rights under the shareholders agreement to do that. But in practical terms, uh, probably a tougher transaction to do. Um, having said that, 
STW enabled David to take DT to a completely different level, um, then probably he could have that quickly on his own. Got it. So, I mean, it's just interesting because in a way, you know, you get like, let's, I mean, let's take it out of the agency world to, to a world where people would understand. Let, let's say you, you got a shoe making company, you make running shoes and Nike buys 40% of your business. Well, Adidas isn't going to want to be in bed with Nike. So doesn't it in a way like reduce your overall landscape of potential buyers dramatically if you've got this, this big sort of kind of appendage to, to your company, meaning a 40% stakeholder in, in a massive you know, marketing agency? Well, I think uh, from my point of view, John, I think, I mean, being realistic about it, I mean, again, when they first bought the 40%, it was a, it was a probably 12 person business that was really built around me with my name on the front door. And I think the chances at the time of, even though we've been to this dot-com phase, the realistic chances of selling the whole business um, for a good for a good price at that point, we're fairly we're, you know we're realistically fairly limited, um, and so you know I, and I didn't really want to sell the whole business at that point. That wasn't really my goal. My goal was to take some money off the table, um, you know, pay off part of my house or my house. I can't remember at the time what what was going on, um, and and really have a partner that could help me continue to grow the business. So that was really my objective, and and I, overselling the whole business. And and funnily enough, late at a later stage. One of the things that actually triggered the final 51% was a competitor to STW actually contacted me and asked me if I could buy my shares back to sell them to them. Um, and that's that's what initially started the conversation around selling the final 51% to STW. Interesting. So let's talk about that first that first transaction. So you're, you're a relatively small business at the time. They buy 40%. Do you remember ballpark what they paid for that? Yeah, look, I think I'd sold 11% to Michael Ball, who was this angel investor, for about $150,000 at that point, um, you know, which which was actually a pretty good valuation at the time because we weren't making a whole lot of money. Um, And then the, and then we, I I sold, that's right, I sold the another 30% to SDW and they bought 41 in total because they bought Michael's share and they bought my share. And I think it was maybe 350 or 400,000. So the first, 40% 40% sort of netted me, you know, maybe 500,000, something like that. Um, which at the time, you know, when I was, um, you know, that was a, that was a huge amount of money to me at the time. And, and, um, and it was a small business and I still had, still had a long way to go. Got it. And so how did Michael feel about that exit? Um, look, he, he introduced me to STW when, when his plan to, he was a guy behind this big roll up and list and IPO listing. And when that sort of failed, um, he was keen to, you know, to to take some money to cash in his investment and make a return. Um, he sold his share. I made sure that he he got a good return from his share. So he got dividends along the way, and then, you know, within a year or two, I think he sold his he for his his ten percent. He ended up getting. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was a couple. Of, it was two hundred and fifty thousand or something like that. So he was, and that was a bit on. of a bone of. Yeah, definitely, and there was a bit of a point there where. STW was really pushing for him to take a lower amount of money because they didn't want him to get the full benefit of the earn out because he wasn't doing the earn out. And I dug my heels in and said, look, if he doesn't get, I effectively negotiated for him to get the um, the full potential of my earn out effectively up front, which they didn't like. And I said, well, if, you don't, if you're not doing that, then I'm not going to do the deal because I really wanted him to, I really felt obligated to make sure that he as a shareholder was rewarded for his investment and his support. Um, so that was that was one of the kind of, the, the components of the deal was making sure that he, um, you know, he got a fair fair payment for his equity as well. 
Got it. And the 500K that you got for that first tranche, was that up front, the cash component, and then there was some back-end earnout piece to that? Or, or did that was that including the earnout? No, that was look. It, it, it probably grew from there. So I'm I'm trying to think of exactly the, the numbers. I don't actually have them at hand, but yeah, if Michael had got about 200 back, you know, I probably I think the initial deal was I got I got 70 percent of what would happen is that value the business on a multiple of of profit, and it might have been six times. Um, six times profit before tax, something like that. And then that, what they do is they'd say, right, we'll give you 70% of that now as a deposit. Um, and then in three years time, we'll take the average of the three years, three year earn out period, and we'll apply that by the multiple again. And, and we'll pay, and then we'll top you up so that, so that your ultimate amount that you get ends up being um, what the multiple times the three year earn out period. Um, and so, so you get a top up. So there's really no cap on, on what you can do. Um, so yeah, I think I think that that first three years that grew, and 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 perhaps it started out as being a four hundred fifty thousand dollar deposit that turned into turned into six or seven hundred something like that. Got it. Got it. Okay. So then you mentioned there was the second uh, transaction in in two thousand five for eight percent. What was the backstory on that? Well, I think I think I was building a beach house or something. And I just, I just, um, <laughs> I mean, quite, quite seriously, I, I bought some land and I was doing this project and I literally just thought, well, hang on a minute. This is a bit weird. And I've got, I've got, um, you know, I've sold 41%. You know, there's another, there's another 8% I can sell and I'll still have 51 and I'll just, I'll, it's just a way of raising some capital. So I think I just, um, I spoke to them and said, how do you feel about buying another 8%? And they said, yeah, it's a great business. And that was all done very, very, very quickly. You know, we already had established the multiple from the first transaction. Um, and um, they, they knew the finances. There was no due diligence required, you know, all, all the rest of it. So it was all kind of done. And I had a check a couple of weeks later. So it was just a, a very simple transaction to raise some more, some more cash for me. It's like a bank machine. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's really interesting. So, I mean... You've got. Was there something magic uh, for you about maintaining, f- at least you know, controlling interest fifty point one percent? As oh, it were. It, oh, definitely, definitely. You know, I mean, again, my name was on the door. It was my baby, and one of the reasons. Look, the other thing is one of the reasons why I sold to STW as opposed to a whole lot of other groups, and and I'm really glad I did sell to STW because they were they were a great partner, and um, and the business has grown and flourished, and. Part of their part of their offer at the time was, we want you to keep doing what you're doing. You know, we've got 80 companies, we've got a small head office team of six or seven people. We don't want to get involved in running your business. We want to we want to support you. We want to help you grow, give you whatever you need so that you can be successful and let you do it the way that you want. You know, and um, even to the point where you know if you don't want to work with our finance team and you want to work with your own accountant, that's fine. You know, we'll support you on that if there's a good reason for it. So they, were, they, they really um, did offer a, a huge amount of autonomy, which was very appealing. Um, like a lot of business owners, you know, I think I was probably a bit of a control freak at the time. And, and um, it was, you know, I, I, that, that really appealed to me that I could go to them for support, but still sort of do things my way. So that was definitely, you know, appealing and keeping the 51 was, was, was important at the time. And Jeff, you knew the, 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 Share per, the share agreement, the the uh, shareholders agreement that David had with STW. Um, 
you know, they, I'm assuming as a 40% shareholder, they had specific rights uh, that they were entitled to. Was David's you know, desire to have controlling interest, was that rational? Did it, did it give him any benefits over, over not being a 50% shareholder? Um, look, perhaps if I come at that issue from a slightly different perspective, um, one of the key things I think David has all, had always wanted to do with DT was build a great company. Um, and there were probably two possible ways of doing that. One was to try and do it on his own and and to have total control all the way through. The, the other one was to um, effectively work with a with a big brother uh, to get him there, and that's effectively the route that he ended up taking with um, with STW. So I think the issue of control was was really around how much autonomy David wanted at particular times running the business. Um, so certainly in the early days, it was. Um, I think very important for David to sort of feel like I've got, you know, full control, I own 51% and so on. So in terms of the shareholders agreement, it was a fairly standard shareholders agreement where uh, there were a range of things that uh, both parties need to agree on. There were the normal dispute resolution clauses and so on. And and there was certainly the option David could have exercised rights and gone and sold, um, sold his business to somebody else. Um, but I think, I think the relationship was, you know, was very good with STW over a long period of time, and and David's view was if he just kept um, working with STW, that would be the best way to turn DT into a great company, and that's that's effectively what happened. I mean, STW sounds like a either a very philanthropic buyer or somewhat naive in the sense maybe maybe again I might be all wet on this, but weren't they taking a huge gamble about? becoming a minority shareholder in a business they didn't control and and not papering it or legally giving them some some way to to sort of uh, impact their investment beyond just well we think David's a good guy oh well, no I think yeah go on David oh, no, I was just going to say I think I mean their model at the time was very much um, about creating an ecosystem where multiple businesses, small businesses that were really, you know, really driven by their founders could cooperate, work together, refer clients to each other and so forth with them having a, having a stake. And, and they certainly, you know, they, 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 they did have rights and the ability to, to take different courses of action. And over time, um, you know, they have, you know, looking back, they have taken more, a, a greater stake in companies. They've, they've, um, they've sold businesses back to, 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 to the founders. Um, at the end of the day, it was all about, look, if we're all getting along and we're all working well together, then everyone wins. And and the bigger the earnout check we can give you, the happier we are because you know we're a publicly traded company and our multiple is greater than yours, <laughs> sort of thing. So you know that that was really part of their model was to was to was to really empower these eighty founders or management teams to to really drive this organisation and find synergies. And um, and if there were ever issues, they'd you know they'd, they'd sort of look to resolve them in in fairly straightforward ways. You know, I think the sort of businesses and the scale that we're talking about, as soon as it became to a, a, a contract, you know, dispute, then there's a there's a bigger problem which is probably not going to be solved. You know, so that that's how I saw it, both from as the buyer and also as the buyer when I was working at STW, and also as the the seller. There, there was a lot of there was a lot of trust involved, and and. Um, you know, it, it was all about being part of a community where everybody would win if we're all working together. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that, David. It was very much a partnership style approach because, John, I would have worked on a lot of transactions with shareholder agreements similar to the one David had uh, with larger businesses that were just nightmares to deal with under very similar terms. But STW had very much a partnership type approach. And I think that, you know, in most cases worked out really well with the companies they invested in. Yeah, I mean, I'll just give you a very personal experience. We're looking at at uh, a negotiate. We're negotiating uh, new office space, and we're looking at the third floor of a building. And on the first and second floors of a building are a major bank, big, big, big bank. And so, in the lease agreement that bank has with the owner of that property, they have the right to veto anyone who is going to go into the third floor. So, if a spa or tattoo parlor or whatever wants to go into the third floor, that bank can veto it. That's the degree of. Control Control they've papered into a lease. That's not, they're not buying the building. <laughs> That's a lease. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, I mean, they are, they are litigious to a, to a crazy point. It, it, I just find it fascinating that, that, uh, that, uh, STW would, would sort of buy without control. But you know what? We probably belabor that too much. Let's move on. I noticed that you, you started out as David to Tewern, uh, design, I think you said, David. That's right. Yeah, and, that's right. And, yeah. and then over time, it, it evolved to DT. Uh, maybe talk about that evolution because there's a lot of people listening to this right now whose names are on the door of their company, who can't get a meeting without showing up. They can't sell a product without them being the face of the company. So how do you evolve yeah. from, you know, this is David and a few friends to a business that can get acquired? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So look again, initially it was me and my computer and I, uh, trestle table in a rented space and my $5,000 on my credit card. And, and I was a freelancer that was designing and, and building websites on my own um, at, a, at a young age. And I, I hired some staff and I, you know, fortunate because I was so early in the piece, I got the opportunity to create the first Mercedes Benz website in Australia, which was a great first client. So then I had to, you know, hire some people to help me. And so, you know, I went through, it wasn't just about the branding. I mean, the business changed from being David Trewin Design to DT Design to DT Digital to DT, you know. So I had, I think I had about six different business cards through the through that period um, and the business kept on evolving. And and it wasn't just about the brand. It was about the way that I, I interacted with the staff. And, you know, really initially it was really all about me and that's what we were selling. We were selling me being supported by some staff and and I had to work really hard to switch that around and and um, really to make myself redundant. And a funny story, I, I've got a, a good friend who was a, a, a top sort of celebrity chef, if you like, in Australia. And he told me this great story about he would he would go off and create a new menu, um, and then he would teach the the kitchen to cook the menu better than him. You know, so you're cooking the carrots, you're cooking the steak you're making doing the fish and, and this is all you're doing and you've got to be able to do it better than me you know and when they could actually cook the menu better than him um he'd he'd you know he'd he'd, he'd start having a few nights off from the kitchen and going to the gym and go on some holidays and he'd come back and get inspired and create a new menu and start the process again so it's this sort of process of making yourself redundant so that you can actually um, you can then add value to the business in different ways. So I sort of got the hand, I, you know, I got my head around that and, and, and really worked hard to kind of mentor the staff, let them make mistakes from time to time and learn and, and put them forward. And I'd say to my, particularly the staff that were looking after clients, you know, I want the client to call you because you're going to be more responsive than me. You know, if, if, if I'm going to get back to the client faster than you, they're always going to call me. So they've got to work out themselves that, 
they're going to get a better result by calling you because you're going to do a better job at servicing than me. So, you know, I really, you know, I had to shift my role to being a support person who was then, you know, supporting my team um, as opposed to them supporting me. So that was a sort of big headspace change that I needed to make that then allowed me to change the brand, step back from the business and progressively keep stepping back to the point now where, you know, as of last month, last month, I was still the, um, non-executive chairman, but but really working one day a month in the business, um, really just mentoring the CEO. So Jeff, from your perspective, what, how did you see David's business evolve on this point? Yeah, I, I guess I always saw David wanting to build um, a, a great business and, and a big business. So he was always really interested in scaling it. And, and right from the very early days, we talked about this concept of working on the business, not in the business. And I think that's a concept David got his head around really early. Um, he was also really good at getting um, other people around him to put a lot of the structure in place. Um, and David's wife, Beth, when I think played a huge role in the business early on to put in a lot of the systems, processes, procedures, and also a lot of the culture about the organisation that helped it grow and scale. Um, and I think the fact that David was always looking at, as he said, effectively making himself redundant um, was a really powerful um, element in, in the success of DT over many years. And that started very early on. And David and I discussed that a lot in a whole range of ways over, over many, many years. You know, it's unique for the creative business. I remember giving a speech to a, a group of graphic designers. There's probably a hundred graphic designers in the room. And I was up there saying, you know, they, it was all about built to sell and how do you kind of make your business less uh, dependent on you? And I was, you know, you got to get systems in place. You got to make sure that it's it's not dependent on you. You got to get your name off the door. Blah, blah. And the, like the the color is draining out of the eyes of the audience as they, as they hear me like say, you got to make your business like McDonald's, you know, so, and, 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 and it was like an theme to who they are as creative people, right? They're like, no, no, no. Like, we're all about creative. We're all about design. We're all about making things unique and everything's custom. And I'm like, yeah, well, you can be a designer or you can own a business and someone would want to buy. You pick. David, in your yeah, case, exactly. where, did, where, did that, where did that come from? Because for a lot of people in the creative business, that's not natural for people. Yeah. And look, it wasn't natural for a lot of my contemporaries and my friends who've also, you know, you know, I, I was a graphic designer to start with. And, and I, I don't know, I think I, I think I, um, I really enjoyed the process of designing a business. And, and, and there's actually, you know, I went on a, on a, on a travel scholarship before I started the business to the States. And there's a guy that I met called Clement Mock who started this business called Studio Archetype. And he actually wrote a book called designing business. And, and it sort of really clicked to me that, okay, this is like a design project, actually making this business so that it has the right structure, it's sustainable, it's it can grow, it's um, you know, it's not dependent upon me. That's actually a design project in its own in its own right. So I suppose I sort of took that mindset and um and that became that became the focus of my it, it, a lot of it's about taking your ego out of it, I suppose. I mean there's a lot of graphic designers who that you know they they can't they, they become addicted to having their their name on all the awards and and it's all about them and and like you say you can't have it both ways you know you either build a structure that you're supporting or it is all about you but I think for me I always got the most satisfaction from seeing walking past a meeting room seeing a group of my team in there with a client um, solving problems making things happen without me being in the room and I would get I would get such a kick out of that it's like I've created this 
And this is happening now without me, which is actually for me an even greater achievement than uh, me being the one in the room solving the problems, you know? So that sort of became the thing that sort of fed my ego in a way was seeing this thing continue to grow um, without me needing to be the one growing it. Love it. Love it. And, and I think that's, uh, that's a very interesting kind of pivot to how you get your, your ego gratification and that we all need, but, <laughs> but in a different, different sort of way. Let's jump f- fast forward to the, I guess it's the third transaction with STW, uh, 2007, I guess it, it started. Uh, it sounds like it, it was actually triggered by somebody, a competitor that wanted to buy the other half of the business or buy, actually, I guess the whole thing. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look, well, I think what had happened was um, the, the market had sort of picked up a bit, you know, 2007, we had another bit of a boom um, before the, the GFC came came about. And, um, and there were a couple of other companies that had managed to float and list and they were talking up digital services and so forth. So there was a group um, that had just floated and they contacted me and said, you know, we, we've, you know, you, you're one of the, the top businesses in the country and what's the equity structure and do you think you could buy your equity back and sell it to us? And, and it made me sort of really think and, well, actually, I wouldn't, I, I don't mind the idea of kind of entertaining this. I wonder what I could get. And, you know, it's been a long time now. I'm getting a bit sort of burnt out. Um, and, and, and I went back and looked at our revenue and our growth and I sort of realized that, that a lot of our, while STW being part of the group had definitely helped, it given us huge credibility and helped us grow. When I looked at the actual revenue split, it was only probably 5% of our revenue was actually coming from the group. We were still generating all the new leads and sales through our own profile and through our, you know, through our own, our own means. So I called up the CEO of STW and I said, look, you know, like I've just realized we're not getting a huge amount of leverage from the group. We've kind of been blocked here and blocked there and different companies in the group are saying they don't want to work with us for, you know, because we're part of the group. They like the idea of working with people outside the group because it seems a bit more sounds a bit more interesting to their clients. Um, and I've been offered this opportunity to, to buy the equity back and sell it. What are we going to do? You know, and that started a conversation that said, well, you know, yeah, you're right. We do need to work out how to get more leverage out of this. And um, we've just had two agencies merge. So the CEO said to me, look, we've just had two, two of our biggest agencies in Melbourne are merging. They're moving into a space together and they don't really have any digital capability. So, you know, you could potentially move in with them. And if you did that, then we might potentially look to buy more equity. Um, and, and that's how it sort of started the conversation. What was the other group offering in terms of a multiple of uh, pre-tax profit? I don't think it even got to that point. They were literally just exploring and saying, you know, could you do it? Um, and look, I, had, I think I looked up and seen what they'd done in terms of, um, pay, you know, what that offered. Um, other businesses because some of that was public information through their, you know, because they're a public company. Um, and it was interesting, but look, at the end of the day, um, that company ended up failing. <laughs> um, and a whole lot of companies that sold to that business ended up in a, in a whole world of pain. And, you know, STW was always the, you know, the premium business to sell to and, and still is, you know, in, in Australia. Um, John, there's there's perhaps another interesting perspective to add to this as well. Um, if you go back to 2007, um, th- this was sort of the time when a lot of traditional advertising agencies were really starting to struggle with their business model and you had all these new digital agencies like DT coming along um, and 
a lot of the traditional agencies were having trouble working out how to get digital properly into their into their product mix and service mix and so on. And I think it was a really important part of STW taking out uh, DT was them coming to the realisation that that digital really was the future and they really needed to ramp up their digital capacity very, very quickly. And, and David, you, you'll probably recall, we, we spent probably a good six months or so on that strategy with STW and it was, was really when the penny dropped at their end, sort of going, we really do need to do this and we actually have a great agency sitting here already, let's buy the rest of it. Definitely, yeah, and look, and that that really unlocked a better multiple for me in the in the final transaction as well, and much better terms, um, yeah. because as the more we talked about it, the more they realised. I mean, they were effectively putting together two very large agencies to create the largest ad agency in Melbourne, and it had it had really a five person digital team out of a two hundred person agency, um, and and we were you know we were chipping away and stealing revenue from companies like this every week and that's how we were growing um and so and I, and I really switched into i'm going to solve this problem for you guys you know i remember doing a yep. presentation back to them back to the um the ceo at the time and saying of stw and you know the company they owned ogilvy in australia you know very big famous advertising agency right through north america and, and europe and and that's effectively who we moved in with um and the the, the 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 front screen on my slide presentation was, you know, this is how we're going to future-proof Ogilvy, you know. So that was really what we were offering was we're going to future-proof this agency that you've got, which is your prized asset, um, by bringing all of these digital smarts and our kind of nimble, agile, um, you know, high-growth, you know, approach. We're going to bring that to your, to your key asset. So it's not so much about buying our business for our profits. It's about helping to strengthen your key assets. So I, I kind of, you know, we're talking with Jeff, you know, we kind of, I got that very early on and I was just there going, how can we make this great for Ogilvy? And so Jeff talks a lot in his book about thinking like a buyer and, and that's really what we were doing was really completely focused on solving their problem. Um, well, and I think the and I think the interesting thing about that, David, is you 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 were actually thinking beyond where they were in terms of what their problem oh, totally. was and how they I needed mean, totally. to fix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw it very clearly that you know this agency that you've just you know paid a lot of money for different components of it, put it all together, and it's it you know I, I had a very bullish view that it's it's going to be half its size in five years, and we're going to be three times our size, and um you know and you know, you need to do this. And I think that they, I don't think they fully appreciated it to the level that, that I saw it and, and as actually unfolded over the next few years. Um, so, but they, you know, they wanted to kind of hedge their bets and they started getting their head around the fact that, yeah, we really need to do this. So what was interesting was it started off with me wanting to sell them a little bit more, like maybe another 20%. Another they came back and said, we want, yeah, exactly. They came back and said, um, we want to buy the whole lot. Like if we're going to do this, you're going to become part of DT is going to become a key component of Ogilvy, which is our core asset. So we actually will only do this if we can buy the whole lot. We want to buy the full 51%, um, which was unusual because they kind of had a rule of not buying companies out completely, you know? So in effect, I created my own um, complete exit plan um, by thinking like a buyer and solving their problem. Um, yeah, I think that otherwise their preference would have been, you know, to, to keep me with 20% and keep me on indefinitely. 
So that was the thing that really unlocked. And I had a lot of other people in the group since that have said to me, how did you do that? You know, I want to sell my final 25%. How do I do that? <laughs> and my advice to them is always like, you've got to work out how to solve a really big problem for them. Um, and then at the same time solves the succession problem because for, by us becoming part of Ogilvy at the time, that also took solve the succession problem because there was a CEO of Ogilvy that could ultimately take over DT if I was ever going to leave. So when you say think like a buyer and solving this big problem, the big problem was they were jamming together two agencies in Melbourne to this tune of, of a couple hundred employees. So roughly what, 30 million in revenue? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so they got a thirty million dollar bet on this on this business in, in Melbourne. Um and and sort of five people on digital. So a complete disaster relative to where the market was going. So you represented a way for them to basically ensure that thirty million dollar investment. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And then today, today DT this year DT will turn over thirty five million. Um and the agency that we moved in when we'll be turning over much, much less, you know, so, um, it, you know, that, that really did hedge their, hedge their bet and, and help solve that problem. So STW comes to you and say, okay, we want the whole thing. I, I sense that you sniffed out leverage and were able to get better terms. So you they sold, they bought the first 50% for six times EBITDA, 70% up front, 30% on the come. What did, what did they, what did they offer you for the second tranche, the 50%? Yeah, look, I think I'm just trying to remember all the all the metrics, but I think I think the I think the multiple increased by sort of 25. Um, that wasn't even anything that I pushed because I was sort of stuck in my head that well, the multiple is the multiple, and I think when they realised the, um, I think when they realised the, the, you know, the potential of this, one of the people actually let slip, one of the execs let slip in one of the meetings that you know we're buying digital businesses in Asia for for kind of 10 times NPAT. Um, and then that kind of became the, um, I think it ended up being nine times NPAT. That sort of became the, the, the new multiple. Yeah, it was, was high single digits and, and the earn out was on pretty favourable terms. Yeah, well, again, yeah, the earn out became on much more favourable terms than the previous transactions in the fact that they, the deposit increased um, you know, they pretty much said, look, we're going to give you the whole deposit up front and, um, and you've got the earn out in place as well. So, you know, but I think, I think looking back, I don't think I fully realized the, the extent of, of, of the value that we could have created. And part, you know, part of the thing was too, that DT's growth was starting to stall at that point. So I was also getting a bit nervous that while, you know, the future's digital and, um, you know, we, we'd kind of struggled for 12 months to actually to keep growing. Um, we'd, we'd sort of having some growing pains at that point. So, um, you know, I was, I was kind of happy to, at one point I was happy just not to even have an earn out. I was happy to take the money <laughs> because I just, I was a bit burnt out and I just couldn't really see how the business was going to keep growing, even though I knew that it had a lot more potential than, than, you know, the agency side of things at, at their end. You used an acronym that I'm not familiar with. You you, you said MPA. I don't I don't know what that is. Oh, so I'm oh, sorry. N, N, no, I meant NPAT, uh, net profit after tax. Net, net profit after tax. Okay, so net profit after tax. Yeah, and they were they which were is, which is closer to which is closer to your sort of traditional you know um, you know company earnings. Um, you know, for a public company. A public company. And what were they trading at at the time? Yeah. Out of interest. 
Um, they look at one time they were trading in the twenties, and I think at that point they'd come back to probably twelve or thirteen, something like that. Um, so there, there was there was much less of a gap between what they were paying and um, and what they were trading at. However, you know that what they were paying me was was a an earnout which was based upon an average of of the next three years. So what that meant was if we kept on growing over the three years, I'd end up with a business which would be worth, you know, on their books, let's say it's their multiple times our final year of profit where they'd paid me um, for an average over the three, you know, so they're always going to be in front on that, on that respect if we grew. Right. And then kept growing obviously after I, after I exited as well. That's called being a creative guy. So let me just talk directly to my listeners. When when your buyer is trading at a higher multiple than they're paying for you, it's accretive, meaning the moment they make the transaction, it increases their value as a company more than uh, the price they paid for you, uh, being accretive. And another good way to get them to pay more, right, Jeff? Absolutely. Were you going to add something else on that, Jeff? Um, no, I, I think it's I think it's worth probably talking a little bit about um, how the earnout actually actually. Um, worked in practice because uh, I think what one thing David did that was really important was um, he had uh, a guy Brian Vella who's been managing director of DT for a long time now who David had worked up in that position for a long time so so once he sold the remaining part of DT um, Brian was already in the MD role which really freed David up to play a a very different role going forward and he wasn't as responsible for the direct um, uh, performance of DT the way a lot of lot of sellers are when they actually do an earnout, and I think it's worth exploring that a little bit. Well, it, it sure is, and I'd also like to understand what proportion of your take was was in the earnout. So, so you, let's just let's just do the numbers. So, f- you're selling fifty percent of the business for nine to ten times something in that neighborhood net profit after tax. Um, and so, what proportion of that were they offering upfront versus? contingent on you hitting future goals? Well, I was in a fortunate situation, again, because because we were really solving this problem. I mean, typically they would always pay a deposit and, and leave a bit, a bit off. So at that particular time, they said, look, you know, we can see this is going to work. And because I pushed back and said, I want, I want all the money up front. You know, I don't, I don't want to leave. I don't want to wait three years to get, to get some of the money. So what they said was, okay, we're going to give you 100%. So we're going to apply the multiple times, you know, this year's profit or last year's profit. I can't remember what it was. Um, and we're going to give you 100% of that as a deposit. So I was basically getting paid for, you know, for the business as it was performing then and there up front in 2007. And I think it, I think that was something like $2.5 million or something like that. Um, and then what we're going to do is we're going to then top that up in three years. Um, with, you know, the, the, the three years, the average from 2007 to 2010 times the multiple again, minus the deposit. So, you know, I went into this thinking, I'm happy I've got my two and a half million, you know, that's great. And um, not really hoping or expecting for a whole lot more. And then as things started to continue, we realized that we could actually unlock lock all this value from this Ogilvy partnership um, and, and from the group. Um, and again, we tripled over that period. And so we went from, I think $3 million revenue to 10. Um, so my final payment ended up being bigger than my first payment. The earnout payment ended up being about 3 million, you know, um, so, which was fantastic, you know, so it was really a win-win for everybody because, you know, at that point they had a much more valuable business. Um, I got an earnout that I kind of wasn't really expecting. Um, and, you know, most of the value 
in the, in the whole sailing of the business came in that final earnout uh, that was really kind of a bonus as far as I saw it at the time. Were you tempted at all to leave in 2007 after the $2.5 million check cleared? No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't so much. I wasn't ready to leave. I wanted. I wanted to give it a good crack. I wanted to integrate the business. I wanted to take on this challenge of dealing with this merger. Um, and you know, the, the five or six people that I talked about that were the, the digital team within the agency. Um, the other component which made it a bit complicated was that I effectively took those people over, so they became part of my team. Their P and L folded into my P and L. Um, and I was kind of leveraged to their performance as part of my in-out as well. So I really wanted to make all that work. I was really enjoying myself at that time as well. I mean, I was a little bit burnt out and I was kind of focused on, great, in three years, I'm going to have, I'm going to have a holiday. <laughs> I'm going to have a big holiday and, and have a break. Um, the pressure will be off. But, you know, I was kind of, you know, I was looking forward to that period um, at, the start of that, at the start of that three years. Jeff, from a legal perspective, did, did STW have any recourse if, uh, if David had taken the check and run, so to speak? Um, they, they had, I mean, he probably could have, could have gone then if he wanted to. Um, probably the main leverage they would have had at that time was he, he was tied up with all the usual sort of restraints and so on. Um, and they, and they like ran non, for non a period of time. Man. Yeah. Yeah, non-competes. Um, so David would have, in in practical terms, effectively been locked out of the industry for several years. Um, so that would have been that would have been a big disincentive. But but I think the, the the thing that was really interesting about this, John, is I mean, as we all know, most people have um, bad experiences through earnout processes. That that's the normal normal sort of. Um, scenario. Whereas whereas because David had this quite interesting new role with STW and he got involved in a lot of their acquisitions, uh, it was the opportunity to to kind of reinvent himself, working with a really interesting public company. Um, so for him, it, it was an ability to partially move on to something quite different. And I think David learned a huge amount working with SDW over, the, over, the, over that period of time. So it's quite unusual compared to most earnouts. So tell us about that process because David, you effectively became STW's in-house corporate development person. You were you were on the hunt to buy agencies on behalf of STW. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, look, look, my big motivation for selling, which sounds funny, was I wanted three months off, you know. And so when I got to the end of that 2010 uh, earnout period, I said to um, Brian, who was the MD, "Okay, you're now in charge. I'm going on a three month around the world holiday with the family. When I come back." Um, if things aren't going well, I'll have my job back. <laughs> and if things are going well, I'll find something else to do and get out of the way and, and let you, you know, continue to grow and, and, and run the business. So I came back that had a, that had a kind of terrible month and they got things back on track. Things are going okay. So I then went to two days a week working for DT as the chairman and two days a week working for STW and I became their first chief digital officer. So I had to then develop their digital growth strategy and that involved uh, training um, the um, uh, 3,000 odd people across the group in digital and also, you know, bolstering their, their digital capability by doing acquisitions in a number of key areas, mobile, social media, you know, search, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so that became I, – I was working with the COO, the CEO and the CFO, um, and that became a really interesting period where I, I, I learned a lot. I was doing the investor the roadshow and doing the um, results presentations and talking about the percentage of digital revenue in the group and, and the growth 
um, ratios of that and the acquisitions that I, I was doing. So it became very easy for me too to find good acquisitions and and to execute them because I was able to sit down with some of the best digital companies in, in the country that hadn't yet been acquired and say, well, look, here's my experience. It went really well. <laughs> this is a great group. Um, and and to really come at those conversations from both sides and say, look, and, I, and I'd, I'd educate them on some of these things that I've learned and say, look, if you really focus on bringing value to the group, you'll be rewarded. You know, don't come into this in this sort of defensive headspace of, you know, I've got to screw them down and get, you know, get everything I can and, and make sure, you know, it was really about make it, make it work for, for them and it'll work for you the way that the, um, the way that these deals are structured. What did you look for in an acquisition? What did I look for in an acquisition? Um, well, we, you know, we, we used to talk at STW, which I really believed in as well about the, um, we had this criteria of four things. You know, the first thing is the people, you know, we've got to be able to work well with the people. This is a partnership. We've got to be able to all get along, go and have a beer, <laughs> resolve issues, communicate well. So that was the number one priority. Um, the second thing was we've got to be able to add value to the business that we're acquiring. If, we, if they're not going to become instantly more valuable by being part of the group, then it doesn't make sense to actually do the acquisition. Um, so we've got to be able to add value to them. You know, they've got to be able to add value to the group as well by bringing something new and 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 um, that we don't currently have. Um, and the fourth criteria was the people again. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be the right fit with the people. So a lot of it was around finding like-minded people who knew what they were getting themselves into, um, who, you know, it wasn't just all about the highest dollar. It was about, you know, we, we, we would often approach acquisitions and, and there are a couple of situations that I fought pretty hard on where, where companies are actually being offered a higher upfront dollar value than we were prepared to offer. But, you know, what I was offering them was look the, over the course of, over the course of the next three years, there is more potential for you to earn more money um, with us because of this earnout structure. You know, if if the other two criteria are true, if if we can add more value, if we can add value to your business more than the other the other potential acquirers, then you can add value to the group. Then, then um, you know, the earnout structure will mean you'll get more dollars in the, in the end. You know, so that was really um, that was really what we were looking for was a good fit with the group and good people. What was a deal killer? What would an entrepreneur say in a meeting or in an email that would immediately turn you off? Yeah, I, th- I think it was any sense of any sense at all of. I mean, look, the big risk for STW was succession. You know, they buy a business that's Joe Bloggs designed, <laughs> and um, the day Joe Bloggs gets his check, he walks out the door, and all the staff follow him, and and that investment's just gone down the toilet. So, I think it was any sense that that person didn't see the big picture, wasn't a team player and wasn't motivated to see the business go on and succeed, you know, following the transaction and following their earn out. Um, you know, we're really looking for people that wanted to create, you know, create something that continued to go on and grow and could see that by working together, they could transition out, but leave STW in a great position with a great company at the end of it. Um, so that's what we were looking for. And, and, and any sign against that would, would have been the deal killer. And what was your role at this point, Jeff, as, as, as David moved into this new role? 
I, I guess my my role with David's been um, sort of an an advisor in a general sense um, in most of what he's done in his in his business world. Um, so we, we would, depending on what David was doing at a particular point in time, we'd be connecting a lot or just touching base. So um, for me, it was always. Uh, you know how David was going and what he's doing, and then then the next time he moved on to, you know, going into a business or leaving a business or or building a business, then then we'd work with each other as, as we needed to to build as much much value as possible, and and you know make sure David's David was well looked after all the way through. Well, it's a fantastic story, and clearly you guys have uh, have built a great partnership. Uh, David, is there any ask you have of of our audience? Could uh, do you want them to go to a website to to download a white paper? What, what can people do to learn no, more about you? Not at all. No, not at all. I mean, look, I can go and check out dt you know dot com dot au. That's my um, that's my uh, previous business. Um, but look, right now I'm I've sort of. Um, I'm living on the beach with my with my family, and I've again I've been through another another exit, which was probably um, uh, you know a bigger exit, but in a different space that was compressed all in a in a two year period. And now I'm sort of getting involved in a few different projects and investing in some some different businesses over here and enjoying myself. And the adventure continues, but no, there's nothing I've got nothing to sell. <laughs> so, but thank you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> well, it makes your yeah. it makes your contribution to the community uh, even greater. And and Jeff, to you, thank you for for doing this. Uh, thank you for suggesting David and, and adding your value. I know I know David uh, read and referenced throughout um, your book, The Smart Business Exit. So, where can people get that, Jeff? If if people are interested uh, prob- probably for your readers uh, your listeners uh, I'd suggest they go to Amazon's probably the easiest place okay amazon.com and it's available on yeah yeah the book is the smart business exit and the author is Jeff Green with a G Jeff G-E-O-F-F uh, correct Jeff David thank you so much for joining us pleasure pleasure Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.